Exactly who is responsible for labor law enforcement when it comes to federal contractors? The short answer is the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, part of the Labor Department. But that's not the full answer. An acquisition rule that was banned by Congress is rearing its ugly head now agency by agency. We get the latest from the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. David, tell us more about this rule that is somehow like a zombie, and you see its bony hand popping out of a grave here. Well, Tom, as you know, in the government, uh, no idea is ever really fully resolved. It can always come back again, and we see that happening now with uh, something that goes all the way back to the Obama administration. There was an executive order called the very, very nice title of Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces. Well, who's opposed to that? Right. But the implementation of it through the federal acquisition regulation was that an allegation of a labor law violation could lead a contractor to be essentially be blacklisted. That is not eligible to receive a contract. That's an allegation. That's not a conviction. That's not a prosecution. That's not even an admission of guilt in a settlement. Right. And so this was put forth in the federal acquisition regulation. It was enjoined. Its enforcement was enjoined by a federal district court in 2015 or 2016. And then in early 2017, Congress, through the Congressional Review Act, removed it from force. In other words, eliminated uh, the, the regulation itself. That was five years ago. Now, what we saw creep in earlier this year in the agriculture acquisition regulation, even though you have very dedicated listeners, there's probably not a lot of them that read the AGAR in the Federal Register notice that when it comes out. And this was buried in a bunch of technical amendments, but it was a resurrection of the basic idea with the agriculture department being in charge of labor law violations. We have indications from, from some of the watchers of the system that other agencies are contemplating similar rules. Now, PSC commented on this uh, on this draft that the, that the ACAR put out. It may be that we will see it again in a proposed rule, so we'll continue to be ready for that. But the basic idea that you can blacklist a contractor for an allegation is contrary to the basic principles of federal procurement and is not something that PSC would support. Certainly our members would suffer from it. Right, because the rules of federal procurement, which have a basis in statute, are designed to be fair to everybody. And you can't do things on the basis of negative actions on allegations unless they're proven, basically. That's correct. And that's the way it should be. It's the, it's the nature of law in America and it is the rule of law in the federal procurement process. It's what we ought to continue to do. How did this come to light? You said it was buried in a bunch of technical amendments. So somebody was reading the AGAR. Well, one of the benefits that PSC brings to our members is we cover all federal agencies. And so we're not just looking at the federal acquisition regulation or the defense supplement, the DFARS that uh, often comes into play. But we're watching everything and, uh, and our members are watching everything. And so it only had 30 days to respond. Uh, we filed a request for an extension, did not get it, or t- didn't hear anything back on the request for an extension, and filed the comments, and we're prepared to do that again. So it's because we cover all the federal agencies and all the little nits and noise of the federal acquisition regulations flowing down through those agencies. It's a wonder they even bother to make a notice at all. That sounds a little high-handed. Well, you certainly have to wonder what's the intention here, right? Did some GS-15 in the Agriculture Department wake up one morning and say, we'd like to run federal labor law for contractors? I kind of doubt it, but I don't know what the plan is. I believe that one possibility is that the Congressional Review Act abandonment of this process might be seen as only applying if it's done at the far level, at the OMB 
Office of Federal Procurement Policy level or the FAR Council level, that if each agency does it in its own regulations, it would not be subject to the CRA. Uh, that's not our view of that, but there's not a lot of history on Congressional Review act, uh, actions over time. We're speaking with David Berteau. He is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And another subject I wanted to ask you about here, that is the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction's latest report. There were some elements in that that didn't quite sit right with contractors. Well, you remember it's a, you know, a year ago now that the president announced that we were withdrawing all our forces from Afghanistan and they started the process. Process. I don't need to recount the history of uh, the fall of Kabul and the emergency evacuation of well over 100,000 people out of Hamid Karzai International Airport last August. But the cigar issued his interim report on the collapse, on how fast the collapse went. And at both the report itself and a number of former military officers who had commanded in Afghanistan made comments that somehow the contractors pulled out and that that led to the collapse. Well, there's no question but that the contractor support necessary for the Afghan National Security Forces is something that was that they missed as soon as it was diminishing. But it's also true that most of those contractors uh, were following the guidance or the request from the federal government with whom they contracted. There's nobody that I know of that made actions on their own. In fact, uh, in many cases, one agency in particular, which I won't name on the program to protect the companies uh, and the Afghans still inside Afghanistan, their contracts were continued even after the fall of Kabul, even after the evacuation ended. So to blame any of this on contractors, uh, it seems to me to be both misleading and unhelpful going forward, particularly since we've got another war still going on. Right. There is language in the introduction of that report that says that the military, the U.S. military, withdrew contractor support fairly early before the collapse. So, I mean, there's that. It did. And in many cases, the contract itself required the U.S. military or the U.S. government to provide the security. And so once that security is gone, the contractors are kind of uh, in a bit of a a pickle. And many of them had to begin to operate uh, in in a way that probably protected their workers and their work as well as uh, got the job done. Um, It was a mess. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that. This cigar report doesn't really give you the right lessons, I'm afraid. One of the things we know is that the military, both our military and other militaries, need contractor support in everything from technical services to day-to-day operations. Um, and it actually is, is better for the government to use military for those things that only the military can do and to use contractors when to support those so that the military that are both your most expensive workers and in many ways your best trained and most capable workers for their missions are able to focus on their missions, not on the nits and nats behind it. And just quickly, I wanted to ask you about a new bill concerning organizational conflicts of interest that had been marked up by the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, and it seems to concern a single company. Well, there's a, certainly a long-standing set of rules regarding organizational conflict of interest, and the Federal Acquisition Regulation and its various supplements have a lot of implementation language associated with that. But there's also a lot of authority left up to individual contracting officers and programs on how to manage that going forward. You want that uh, that flexibility to be there so that the government can meet its needs. This particular case, this bill, was generated through a series of hearings and reports in both the House and the Senate on one company, uh, which was uh, 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 doing business with private sector companies 
and with an agency at the same time. The agency was the Food and Drug Administration, the private sector companies was a drug manufacturer, and at least there was the potential and the appearance of individuals who were working for both sides of that over a relatively long period of time, eight or nine years. Whether or not any actual conflict occurred still remains to be determined in, in my view. But the bill will, in fact, require additional acquisition regulations to keep this sort of thing from happening. The bill itself doesn't actually create that language. That's going to have to be done through the Federal Acquisition Regulation and the FAR Council. Well, maybe you can get something into that bill to bar what agriculture is doing with its regulations. Well, one of the things that's useful to recognize, Tom, even though it's only you know the 1st of June, Congress and the Senate don't have a whole lot of legislative days left. When this Congress reaches its end in December, it'll go out of business and a new Congress will take effect as voted on in the midterms. Without a lot of legislative days, that means not a lot of legislative vehicles. So we have to watch each bill very, very carefully. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. Look forward to the next one. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do 
admit that, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.
cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.